Welcome to Taking Care, a podcast of opera and the national boards. I'm Susan Bigger. As we all know too well, we are in the middle of a pandemic and things are changing quickly in Australia and abroad. One of the questions that has often been discussed as the pandemic unfolds is our health practitioner workforce. I'm fortunate today to have three guests who know a great deal about this. I'm Alison McMillan. I'm the Commonwealth Chief Nursing and Midwifery Officer. My role is to provide advice to to government and the health department on all aspects of uh, nursing and midwifery. By some background, I was for a long time an ICU nurse in Victoria. Also in the past, I've done work in infection control and a whole range of aspects of quality and safety in care, particularly in the areas of acute health. And in recent times, I've worked in emergency management um, from a health perspective in the Victorian Department of Health and Human Services. At the moment in this current situation, I have a broad remit of providing advice to government around um, the response to COVID-19. It's Brett Simmons. Uh, I'm chair of the Pharmacy Board of Australia. So in that capacity, we regulate the practice of pharmacists. Our main role is to ensure the protection of the public and register pharmacists ensure that there's suitable registration standards. I am a community pharmacist, but at the moment I'm also um, Director of Regulation in Pharmacy Education and Practice at the School of Pharmacy at the University of Queensland. My name is Chris Sapala. I'm the Vice President of the Australian Medical Association, which uh, as most people would be aware is the professional body for uh, all doctors in the country and it has a medico-political role in Australia and to a lesser extent abroad. I am a physician, a respiratory and sleep physician to be precise and I work in both public and private uh, spheres uh, in my practice. Fantastic, thank you. And I should say to our listeners, because of um, the current situation, we are uh, recording this all on, on telephone and hopefully the quality is good for you. So my first question will be to you, um, Alison McMillan. Can you tell us something about the current situation with regards to our health practitioner workforce? Australia is considered to have a world-class health system and that is, of course, as a consequence of the terrific health workforce that we have across the country. Um, working in every aspect of our business and uh, and with that excellent and, um, and dedicated workforce comes the quality of care that we know and see and the great outcomes we have in Australia. Mm. So we know that already. Um, it's highly trained, it's highly skilled, it's extremely well respected across the world. What we're doing at the moment is looking at every opportunity we have to make sure that we can um, surge our workforce, ensure our workforce can work to its um, its full scope of practice to meet the um, the complexity and demands that this pandemic has provided to us. So there's no single one solution. There's um, multiple um, avenues that we're taking uh, to ensure that we can maximise the capacity and capability of our workforce across the country. And are there concerns um, about having enough experienced and qualified health practitioners to manage this pandemic in Australia? Well, I think, Susan, we need to remember that this strategy has two major parts to it. The first is all of the things that we're doing to, to the language we're all familiar with now, which is to flatten the curve. And if we can flatten that curve and, and minimise the demand on our health systems, and particularly we know ICU is a, is a point at which we know that we need to focus our attentions. If we can flatten that curve, and minimise the demand while we surge the workforce, then we're, 
we're optimistic that we can meet the um, the requirements of the community um, across the country. But um, that means that we all need to play our part, whether we're a health professional or as a member of the community, to uh, to mean we can protect the most vulnerable in our communities. Mm, absolutely. So this crisis is clearly forcing uh, us, forcing the health system to be innovative. Um, Brett, I wonder if you can tell us a bit about one of the innovations going ahead, which is a pandemic sub-register for health practitioners. Can you tell us a bit about how this will work? Just to give you a, what, uh, some background to it, we had a request from the Australian Health Ministers to enable us to uh, how we could go ahead and produce more, have more health practitioners to move more quickly back into practice, return to practice. And as Alison quite rightly pointed out, it was, it's looking at a surge workforce. So APRA and the Medical Board of Australia, the Nursing and Midwifery Board of Australia and the Pharmacy Board of Australia are establishing the, uh, a short-term pandemic response sub-register, basically for the next 12 months. So this new pandemic sub-register, it will fast-track the return to the workforce of experienced and qualified health practitioners. So we've got the sub-register will enable doctors, nurses, midwives and pharmacists who previously held general or specialist registration and then left the register of practitioners or they moved to what we call non-practicing registration over the past three years will be able to return to practice. So we think probably we'll be contacting around 40,000 practitioners who meet this criteria to alert them that they will be added to the new sub-register launched this week on the 6th of April. It's going to be a temporary sub-register. It will operate on an opt-out basis with practitioners added to the pandemic sub-register automatically, but they will be able to opt out for any particular reason they want to without telling us. They can just opt out of the system but they're not having to pay and fill in any application forms, pay any fees, and not meet the usual return to practice requirements. So that's how we're going to help uh, get as many of these health practitioners back in the workforce as quickly as possible. That's really interesting. So you said now that there's um, four specific health professions, is that right? I'm just going to clarify, doctors, nurses, midwives, and pharmacists in the first instance, is that correct? Yes, that's correct, yes, absolutely. And, and they will opt out, meaning they'll automatically be signed up, but they can, for any reason, say, no, I don't want to practice again. For any reason, they can, they can opt out, yes. But they, they are initially put on, and then they have the opportunity to opt out. But a very easy process to opt out. With no re they don't have to tell us why. They can just opt out. Well, maybe to throw to you, um, Chris, would health practitioners on the, you know, what we might call the front lines, would they welcome additional staff? Are practitioners concerned about being understaffed? I think practitioners are concerned that there might be a lack of staff if we see a significant peak or rise in uh, corona cases. Uh, there are particular areas which, areas which have been alluded to, such as in the critical areas, ICU, etc., where the strain might be uh, particularly felt uh, and where capacity obviously is somewhat limited uh, as much by physical resources as by human resources. And so these are the concerns that, uh, that do vex and, and, and worry people. Uh, and, and the other aspect with all of this is that there's a large component of care as usual which needs to uh, continue. I mean, people are still going to have uh, cancers diagnosed and have heart attacks and strokes and whatnot that need to be attended to. And so while a significant portion of the entire workforce is diverted to deal with corona and hopefully with the curve flat, 
we won't need that significant surge capacity, but we do need it in place um, if that happens. We do need help to also continue the uh, uh, semi-urgent and urgent work uh, that uh, hospitals and, and, and uh, healthcare staff need to manage on a daily basis. Uh, so that you know morbidity and mortality doesn't accumulate because of non-COVID illness in, in the months to come. Yeah, that's a really good point. And if you think about these additional practitioners, now they don't, um, they may choose not to practice. But if they do come into the into the workforce as what you referred to, Alison, as sort of a surge workforce, um, how do you think that they these new practitioners might be most useful? Do you have any thoughts on where you could see them being applied? That's actually a very difficult question to answer because there's probably an enormous diversity of people on that sub-register with different levels of knowledge and experience. So what will be important is for those, those individuals to identify where they think their strengths and knowledge are and, and how they might best contribute. I think um, you know, it may be that uh, somebody who's retired who has a strong educational knowledge and experience might be able to support an, an education program, um, perhaps um, providing um, peer support or uh, advice to health practitioners during this very difficult time. I think um, those out there who are on this sub-register now will know best their strengths and, and can identify where they might um, be able to work. Um, we certainly don't want anyone to be thinking they're going to be uh, required to work in a place that they don't have the necessary skills and knowledge to do. Um, that 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 this um, that that's not that's not our intention here. It is where we may draw on their terrific experience from in recent times and how best to use that across the country. Just to, to back up what Alison said, I think it's very important these practitioners, and we'll be notifying them when uh, we put them on the register, we send them information that, that we were only expecting them to work within their competence and skill level that they feel confident with. Mm -hmm. We're not going to be asking them to go outside or do something that we don't believe that they think they're confident with. And, and even from the perspective, I suppose, of um, patient safety being the priority, um, that I guess that's another question I would have is for any of you is how, how do you ensure the same standard and quality of care can be provided um, with, with this sub-register? Look, I think it's important to note a couple of things. One, that um, we're expecting, there's a couple of criteria that we've put around in terms of getting asking the practitioners to come back on the register. One was that we considered them qualified, fit and proper and suitably experienced. So that they have to have held general registration or specialist registration within the past three years. Mm. They, they haven't been had cancelled or suspended and um, had the registration cancelled or suspended over the past three years as well. And also basically they have no outstanding complaints or sanctions and are not subject to any conduct performance or health notification at the time they were removed from the register. So that's some background information to, to help the, the patients feel uh, confident these people are, are certainly skilled enough to be doing what we're asking them to do. And I suppose the other thing also to, to say is that they are required to comply with their profession's code of conduct when they come back on and start to work as well. They have to hold professional indemnity insurance as well. And they have to work, as I said before, within their scope of practice. Mm. So there's a couple of things that we've put in place to ensure that they're um, able to do and the quality of care and standard is there. And of course, they do have to work 
always, if they if they do start work, that they're working within the professional practice standards and guidelines that are out there as well. That will be expectation. It's also worthwhile pointing out that um, employees and health departments will also play an important role because they'll be undertaking employment and probity checks as well and providing any induction and training that might be needed. Chris, Paula, can I throw it to you? One question that may come up for people, because many of these practitioners, for example, may be people who have uh, in the last three years stopped practice because they are older, because they have retired. Um, what would you suggest for practitioners who are older and who are now have the option or now who will be have their name um, on this sub-register but may have concerns about their health as they're at significantly higher risk with COVID-19? Do you have any, any comments on that issue? Yeah, I do. Look, it's a really good point and uh, the uh, older patients and in this case, I guess, older practitioners uh, are at increased risk but there are other groups as well. There are, there are practitioners who have chronic disease, who are immunosuppressed and so on, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander background, etc. perhaps, and, and so on, um, all of which place them at greater risk and uh, I think it's really important that we recognise that and reassure that people will not be uh, forced or, or compelled to do uh, work that would make them uh, potentially exposed or, or vulnerable in any way. There's a, an enormous amount of non-patient direct contact work that has to happen to support the overall clinical effort mm -hmm. and, and there are many ways that these people can, can help out uh, with the workload that's going on at the moment, um, both within uh, care institutions, hospitals and so on, but also within departments. I mean, there are phone lines that need to be manned and so on as well, where advice needs to be given and, and you know, a lifelong career in healthcare is a pretty good start for for giving uh, sage advice to people when they, when they ring up. So there's lots of things that these people can do, but we absolutely uh, will be wary of their vulnerabilities and protect them. And that's no different, by the way, than what we're doing with uh, all the, the clinical staff at the moment. So uh, I would imagine, uh, as is happening at the institutions I work at, that elsewhere, uh, older Practitioners are being excused from on-call rosters and certain duties and there's more than enough other things for them to do. So that's definitely a principle that we apply across the board. Mm. So it sounds like it's something that the health system is clearly already thinking about anyway. How do we protect our more potentially more vulnerable practitioners, maybe those who have an underlying health condition themselves? Yeah, look, definitely. And I actually think that's happening really well. My perception and feedback from uh, my colleagues is that that recognition is happening really well and there's no angst about it. And in fact, it's even more than an acceptance that people can excuse themselves from certain jobs. It's actually colleagues saying to other colleagues, hey, listen, I don't think that you should do this because you're potentially a bit more vulnerable. Don't worry about it. We've got it sorted. And, and, and so that sort of esprit de corps is really coming to the fore at the moment and the uh, people who are on the sub-register uh, will be treated no differently and, and in with that group as well. Do you think that it will have a positive impact for other practitioners, Chris, to know that there's an influx of people wanting to put their hand up and help out? Yeah, look, I think there's potentially going to be several positives that we're going to squeeze out of, you know, the disaster that it is this uh, is this pandemic, and uh, you know, improve staff morale and esprit de corps, worrying about each other's resilience and health and so on has definitely been pushed to the fore, and it, 
attention on those sorts of details have probably been a little bit variable um, in the past and, and new ways of offering care that, that don't necessarily expose staff members to, to, to risk. Uh, we're becoming much more au fait with and so on as well. So there's, there are a few positives like that that are going to come out of this that hopefully can continue in a really productive way. It's Brett, Susan. I think there has been some real camaraderie among uh, all the health workers out there, health professionals out there practicing at this stage. And I, I back up Chris as well. I mean, it's real team effort. And I can see everyone's looking after each other and, and realising that everyone is putting in 110%. And, and I think one of the real positives is there out there is that we've always been talking about healthcare and how it works in teams and health teams. And I think this is just really showing right around the globe of um, how everyone's working together to, to get the best health outcome for their patients. Mm. What do you see as the best way that students will be used or that students may assist in this crisis, in your view? Because I presume that's, that, that's not the same as this sub-register. That's correct, Susan. No, it's not. What we are all working across all of the health professional groups is to re-emphasise the importance for undergraduates of clinical placement. We need to continue wherever possible clinical placement so that we can have this year's um, students graduate as we, we plan to. That's very important. So um, it might mean that clinical placements are going to be a little different to how they may have been in the, in the past, but certainly for, um, for nursing and midwifery there's been a strong commitment by all of the Commonwealth but all the states and territory um, chief nursing and midwifery officers, the importance of, of students continuing their education so that we will have them ready to graduate at the end of the year. Mm. That means that during clinical placement, obviously wherever it is, that may be able to contribute to the response. Across different states and territories, there are different models by which undergraduate student nurses, not so much midwives, but student nurses, um, can either be employed uh, under an arrangement in some of the states to be a, an employed student and, and be a part of the workforce. And in other states and territories, um, uh, undergraduate nurses often work as um, assistants in nursing or healthcare workers, are however described. There's no single model, they're all variable, but there are ways in which um, the undergraduates can contribute. Uh, for midwives, it's a little bit more challenging, um, and certainly I'm aware that some undergraduate midwives are struggling to um, get their continuity of care, their requirements for graduation. So again, it's about how we embrace some of the things we've seen come along very quickly. So how do we use telehealth, and how do midwives be a part of some of these things so that we can um, they, they contribute can contribute um, in, a, in a very positive way? Um, there's not at this point, any view that from a nursing perspective we would be um, graduating nurses early. Um, I know some other countries have done that, but that's not within our planning at this point in time. But we want to make sure that those graduates, as I said before, um, are ready to, to join the workforce um, when, when they're due to, which is early next year. Some of the things you've just mentioned are, are ways in which it's adapting right now as we speak practically, but uh, do you have any comments on how the system will continue to adapt in this, in this short time? The, the amount of um, change, adaptation, flexibility we've seen, whether, whether it's at the government level through how that we're addressing some of the financial constraints of people losing their jobs, whether it's the shift that the phenomenal shift we've made in telehealth in such a short time 
just demonstrates that in circumstances like that, there is an amazing willingness um, to be able to be flexible. And that's reflected across all aspects of um, healthcare delivery, whether it's at the at the work at the coalface, um, and and how to change the way we do things to keep people safe, right through the the structures to government, where everyone here, for instance, in the department, has turned its attention to how we can how we at a government level can help those at the, in the workforce to do their job to the best of their ability and without barriers. So. I think we're seeing that flexibility and innovation in a way that many of us have probably not experienced before. The good news part of a very um, difficult story, isn't it? Brett, just as, a, as we sort of round up here, will, will there be, this is, is this phase one, will there be a phase two to this? Do you anticipate needing other types of practitioners besides the four that have mentioned, been mentioned, medical, um, nursing, midwifery, and pharmacy? I actually do. I see this moving forward. I think there's, uh, these are just where the, the immediate priority professions that the health departments want us to try and um, increase uh, and surge workforce. But look, I can see uh, they're already talking to us about other priority uh, professions that they want to get involved. I think particularly uh, the next stage could see physiotherapy, it would be medical radiation and probably psychology as well. I think those discussions are happening now with national boards and APRA and I, I really see them in the next couple of weeks moving towards the potential of a sub-register for those professions as well. Mm, okay, thank you very much. Uh, Chris, do you have anything final you'd like to close with? I might just uh, point out that people who have had significant amounts of time in the healthcare industry or even lifelong careers have a wealth of experience and knowledge and even if they don't apply it in direct patient care anymore, there are a myriad of ways where they can enormously help and bolster the system and, and support their colleagues who are uh, directly treating patients and it's a great thing that we have a system now that can recognise that lifetime of experience and knowledge and, and put it to some use, particularly at a time when there's so much need. And Brett Simmons, do you have any uh, final comments? A, a shout out to all the practitioners out there at the moment, Susan, who are working incredibly hard and very dedicated and I just want to thank you to them for all the hard work that they're doing, going beyond what they're required to do just to try and, and, and help everyone out. Absolutely terrific and uh, everyone's very thankful for their everyone's efforts. And I, that's a good way for us to um, finish up this podcast as well with my thanking my three guests today who have plenty on their plate and plenty of other places they need to be right now. And so we're thankful for their time. That's Alison McMillan, Brett Simmons, and Chris Paul. Thank you so much for your time this morning with us. Thanks for listening to this episode. If you have any comments, questions, or suggestions, please get in touch at communications at To make sure you hear our upcoming episodes, please subscribe to Taking Care in your podcast player. Thanks for listening.